Now, God gave Joshua a mentor and teacher and example. And that is a very good thing to have. This was Moses. And we know a lot about Moses, a great man of God, meekest man on earth, we're told at that time. And we saw Moses interacting with young Joshua on seven occasions that are recorded for us in the Bible. We saw the battle of Rephidim against the Amalekites. We saw at Mount Sinai dinner with the Lord. We saw the golden calf incident and God's anger. Then we saw Moses in the tabernacle with Joshua where God was speaking to him as a man speaks to his friend. Then we saw prophesying in the camp, Eldad and Medad. And those guys were unauthorized by Moses and Joshua was a little jealous for that. Moses said, I would that everybody would be prophesying with the Spirit of God. Spying out the land, an important part of Joshua's training. And then we saw Joshua's ordination. Today we come to Moses' farewell message. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, it's in Deuteronomy 31 and beginning in verse 2. Moses is almost ready to depart this earth and Joshua will take over the reins of leadership. I'm actually beginning in verse 1, Deuteronomy 31. So Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross this Jordan. It is the Lord your God who will cross ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and you shall dispossess them. Joshua is the one who will cross ahead of you just as the Lord has spoken. And the Lord will do to them just as He did to Sihon and Og, kings of the Amorites, and to their land when He destroyed them. And the Lord will deliver them up before you, and you shall do to them according to all the commandments which I have commanded you. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you will give it to them as an inheritance. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Chapter 1, the rules of engagement. What is that? A military term. Rules of engagement would refer to a directive issued by some military authority specifying the circumstances and limitations under which someone, the forces under his command, will engage the enemy in combat. In this case, who is the authority? The authority is God. We have a full theocracy in operation. Theocracy is the best form of government. It's far better than a democracy because if the majority's wrong, they can vote in what's wrong. In a theocracy, God works through a man, but it has to be a special man like Moses or like Joshua. So the supreme commander, the Lord, in Joshua 1.11 is ready for the Israelite nation to enter into the promised land in three days. So get ready. Get your provisions. Get your supplies. We're going in. Wouldn't that have been something if they had 
obeyed. Number two, Roman number two, a choice. Americans like to have a choice. I'm going to give you a choice. And I don't want to be dogmatic about this, but uh, does the promised land represent heaven or the fullness of salvation in Christ right here on this earth? Men like John MacArthur, Ian Thomas, Alan Redpath would say this is a picture of full salvation, the mature Christian life, which is available to every believer. Now others would say, based on Hebrews 3 and 4 and 1 Corinthians 10, that Canaan is a picture of heaven. Some of the hymn writers would agree. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye. We're pretty good on that first stanza, but listen to number two. All over those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the sun forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds nor poisonous breath can reach that helpful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When shall I reach that happy place and be forever blessed? When shall I see my Father's face and in His bosom rest? Well, it's pretty clear that uh, they're talking about heaven there. But I would say, I would agree with Alan Redpath that Canaan, quote, I'm quoting, Canaan is a picture of spiritual rest and victory which can be enjoyed here on earth by every believer, a rest of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the promised land, just like in the believer's life here, there will be some formidable adversaries that we have to face. There will be some strongholds that will have to be cast down. There will be warfare against the enemy, and there will be casualties along the way. And one of our purposes in this study of Joshua is we don't want anybody to be a casualty. We want everyone to be living that victorious Christian life in the strength that God supplies. Now, God is going to do His part, Roman numeral 3. He always does His part. There's no question there. The question is, can we believe that God is going to work for us in the same way that He worked for Moses and for Joshua? Now, they're doing some things a little differently back then. Don't forget, we have the completed Bible. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the resurrected Christ. We have all the testimony of many who have lived by faith in Christ. So things are a little bit different. But will He work for us the same way that he read? we read He promised He would work for Moses? That's what we need to find out. Let's look together in chapter 1 and see what God promised the people at that time. And this is a review of that farewell address we just read. If you have your Bible, we're in verse 2, chapter 1. I'm giving to them the land I'm giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Verse 3, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I've given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. Verse 5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Verse 9, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's pretty good. Now, someone might say, wow, if God made some promises to me like that, I would be setting the woods on fire for the cause of Christ. Well, turn with me now to the New Testament Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. 
Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, let your character be free from the love of money. That can certainly get you in some trouble. Be content with what you have, for He Himself has said, here's a quote, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Here's what God is saying to you and me. I have given to you everything you need to equip you for life and godliness. You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What does that mean? We are in Christ if you're a true believer. Christ is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. Therefore, we are in the heavenlies by virtue of Christ's presence there. We're not in heaven yet, but we are in the heavenlies because He's there and we are in Him and He is in us. He reigns over all things and we are united with Him. It's a mystical union. We don't understand everything about it, but we know He's there. His Spirit dwells within us. God is saying, you have these blessings, you have power, you have fruitfulness available to you from my right hand. Jesus is sitting right here and He rules over all authority everywhere. I will be with you as I was with Moses. This promise is for Joshua and for us, I believe, but we have to do our part. Number B, the promise of God's abiding presence from Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua 1 applies to Christians today. Now, there is a difference. We are not fighting the Amalekites and the Amorites. We don't have a military army. The church, unlike the nation of Israel, is local, it's international, and it's non-political. In Joshua's day, God was working through the nation. Today, He's working through the church, which goes into many nations. So we have a spiritual army, onward Christian soldiers. We're fighting against the Amalekites' ideas and philosophies and thought patterns, as well as those of humanism, hedonism, atheism, mysticism, relativism, pragmatism, skepticism, naturalism, not to mention socialism and communism. There are a lot of enemies that we have, but here's the battlefield right here. And, of course, right here. So a little bit of difference there. Now, what must an army have if it would be victorious? Well, an army travels on its stomach, so an army has to have food. And what are we told in the Bible? We have the bread of life. We have living water. We have every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God that we live by, not just by bread alone. Well, we've got to have uh, weapons. Ephesians 6 We have the spiritual armor that God gives and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Then we've got to have uh, fuel. In this day and time, this would be very important. You can think of uh, George Patton crossing the Rhine River going into Germany and got to have some fuel to take all that uh, mechanized equipment there. Fuel, we have the grace of God and many means of grace then an army has to have leadership. We have Christ the King and many earthly leaders. 
Christ working through a man. I wish we had a theocracy in this nation. Then uh, we need a strategy. I'm going to go up here a little higher. We need a strategy. And we've got a pretty good strategy given to us called the Great Commission. Go and make disciples in all nations. And then another part of our strategy, 2 Timothy 2.1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active duty entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Pretty good strategy. Then an army needs good morale. If everybody's discouraged, they're not going to be able to win the battles. Here's a verse, Ephesians 6.19. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And another, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all you do be done in love. We're fighting a little different way than Joshua was. Now we're getting into our part, Roman numeral 4. What is our part? Obey the commands of God. Verse 3, possess your possession. Put the sole of your foot wherever you want to possess the land. All you've got to do is go there. And you're going to have to fight your way in, but you just go there and God gives us another promise. If the Canaanites get in the way, I will drive them out before you. Guess what God is going to use? Exodus 23. Now we might say this is figurative, but I'd say it's a pretty good analogy. Exodus 23:28. You need to read this sometime. Hornets. I'm guessing he's going to use those big Texas red hornets. Can you imagine an army running down the road trying to get away from a huge swarm of hornets who are just stinging them all over the place? And they're shedding weapons and armor and everything so that they can run faster to get out of the way. That's what God says He's going to do to the Canaanites. Be strong and courageous. Verses 6, 7, 9, and 18 say essentially the same thing. I'll take verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Did you get the message? Be strong and courageous. And that even comes from Deuteronomy 31. He's telling us that over and over again. Be strong and courageous. You'll do it. I'll give you the grace to do it, but you have to do it. That's important. Forget I have the grace to do it. And then part C, obey the law that I gave to Moses, verse 7. Certain parts of the law have been fulfilled so that we do not have to fly to Tel Aviv today with a sacrifice in order to worship God. We can worship God right here because the sacrifice has been made. And the ceremonial part of the law has been fulfilled. Now remember our lesson title, The Rules of Engagement. Question. Are commandments rules? Are commandments rules? If they are, then I praise the Lord for rules. Because Christ said in John 14, verses 15 and 21, If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. Are those rules? Well, yes, they are, but they're not man-made rules. They are God's rules. And we'd best pay attention to them. We're even told in the Ten Commandments and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, we're going to talk about that. 1 John 3.24, And the one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he, God, in him. 2 John 5.6, Not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we had from the beginning that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Is that true? I can tell you his commandments are burdensome to some people. If you're one of those people to whom God's commandments, Christ's commands would be burdensome, then listen up because we want to understand how it works. I recently heard from a young man who was critiquing our church. He said, I can't stand FCF because they have so many rules. Well, what would we say about that? One reason that rules are obnoxious to some people is they don't like the rules and they don't want to be told that they ought to obey the rules. Another reason is that if and when they seek to obey and do what God has said, they would do it in the power of the flesh, uh, generally, and that is very difficult and it's wearisome. You just can't do it in the power. Of the, you can't follow Christ in the power of the flesh. It's frustrating. Then the response is, well, we're under grace. We're not under law. You don't have to follow any rules. You don't have to do anything. Just show up. You don't even have to show up. They say that despite the clear commands of Christ. Now, in five seconds, can anyone name a rule in this church that if you don't do, you will be chastised? Come on now. Somebody would know one if we got that many. Well, I can think of two. Love God and love others. That was the summary of things. Uh, lest we fall into the devil's trap, let me try to give you the biblical balance here. Grace gives you the ability to obey Christ's commands. Let me say that again. Grace gives you the ability to obey Christ's commands. One day a lawyer came to Jesus and he said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked him a question. What does the law say? How do you read it? And the lawyer said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you got it right. And then, do you know what the lawyer said next? This shows you he didn't get it. He said, who is my neighbor? That's like Jesus is saying, look, if you'll jump over this 10-foot tree, then you'll be saved. And the lawyer says, which tree? It's impossible to jump over a 10-foot tree. And it's impossible to keep the commandments. But, with God's grace, you can jump a lot higher than you ever did before. Not for salvation! Not for salvation! But for the love of God. If we love Him, we will keep His commandments. Now for salvation, repent and trust your life to Christ. Then for spiritual maturity, or we call it sanctification, 
God will supply all you need to fight the battle, but you're going to have to fight and you're going to have to wrestle and you're going to have to run and do all those things that Paul talks about in the power of the Lord that he supplies. The law says, do this and live. But you've got to do it perfectly, of course, because if you stumble in one point, you're guilty of all. Grace says, live and do this. God says, I'll give you the strength and motivation to do it. And that's grace. Obedience will set you free to live the greatest life that you could ever imagine, irregardless of your circumstances. You can be victorious. You can't do it perfectly, but to the extent that you're willing to implement God's grace to obey, you can certainly do it. Grace is the power and motivation to do God's will. His will is that we obey Him. If you accept His grace and utilize it, if you implement it, you get more grace. If you don't, then you quench the Holy Spirit and the power and motivation, the strength you have, shrivels up and you become weak until you recognize and then you repent and then you get another supply of God's forgiving grace. We've said it many times. Grace gives you a new awareness of what is right and wrong. What you ought to do and what you ought not to do. His grace gives you a new attitude. You become interested in spiritual things and obey God. I can remember being up sometimes in front of a large group of people and looking out there and seeing the expression on some people's faces and know they don't have the least spiritual interest in anything. They never open the Bible. They never sing. It's just kind of a blank stare. In their minds, I don't know what all is going on, but they may be out at the lake water skiing. The reason I know that is I've been right there myself where I just wasn't interested in what was going on. Uh, if I had any grace, I had shoved that grace aside. So he not only gives you a new attitude, here's the good part, is grace gives you a new ability, new strength, power to resist temptation, and to choose what is right. In other words, grace gives you the ability to obey God's commands and defeat the enemy. Not the Amalekites. Who's the enemy? The world, the old nature, that's me, and the devil. And those, as we said, are very formidable enemies. We're going to need God's strength and His power to be able to defeat them. Possess your possession of spiritual maturity. It's yours, but you'll have to take it. And that means you've got to fight for it against those enemies. This is how you fight. Now listen to this. Obey God and He will fight for you. Let me say that one more time. Obey God and He will fight for you. You remember what He told you, Hoshaphat, one time? The battle is not yours on this occasion, but the Lord's. Now, most of the time we have to fight. Sometimes we just see God come in and defeat the enemy and we don't have to do anything. Obey God and He will fight for you. How in the world do you get enough grace to do that? Here's the strategy for victory. Here's where we're going today. It's number D under that section. Meditate on the book 
day and night. Now, we've heard mention of the book back in Rephidim. God told Moses, write it down in the book. The Malachites are toast. We're finished with those guys. And, of course, they, they hung on for a long time, but we don't hear about any Malachites today. There is a book. Question. Do you want to be free from your passions and lust that pile on a ton of guilt and make you feel so badly? How would I know that? Because I've experienced that when I was living that kind of defeated life. James 1.25, listen to this. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. Now, what do we usually call looking intently into the perfect law that gives freedom? Meditation. Meditation on God's Word. This is a perfect law. It gives freedom. Paul tells us in Romans 7, 14 and 16, there's nothing wrong with God's law. It's good. If you could keep it perfectly, I suppose you could get in on your record just like Christ. But fat chance of that because the problem is ourselves, not God's commandments. We have a sinful nature and we can't keep those commandments. We need some help. We sin all the time. We sin even when we don't know we're sinning. Why do we sin? We sin because we think it will bring us pleasure. And it does temporarily. But see, we believe that pleasure produces happiness. Nope, that's wrong in the long run. Victory produces happiness. If you don't believe that, just ask um, the Baylor football team. Victory produces happiness. Victory over sin and self and the temptation of the devil, all these things. Charge forth into the land. Possess your possessions. Move on to spiritual maturity, just like Joshua and Caleb, who served God with a whole heart. The Bible says they followed God fully because they had a different spirit. That's the kind of man you need for a theocracy. Now, we're not going to have a theocracy in Washington, I don't think. But you can have a theocracy right there in your own life where God is working through a man. If you're willing, in this case, to meditate on the perfect law that gives freedom. Meditation. J.I. Packer asks a good question in his book, Knowing God. How can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for this is demanding, but simple. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise. And here's the definition. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and ways and purposes and promises of God. Listen to this. It is indeed often a matter of arguing with oneself, reasoning oneself out of moods of doubt and unbelief into a clear apprehension of God's power and grace. Yes, that's good. Do you want to be fruitful in your life and ministry to others? Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but... You know what comes next. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law does He meditate 
day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season, whose leaves shall not wither, and whatsoever he does will prosper. Is he telling the truth? Now, we're talking about God's prosperity. We're not talking about a billion, zillion dollars in your bank account and a Lamborghini in your driveway. We're talking about God's prosperity. The true wealth of life, I believe, would be in relationships. Well, there it is, Psalm 1. James 1.25. Would you like to be prosperous and successful in God's eyes? Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written therein. Then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will find good success. Do you want to have good success? Meditate in the Word. Now, no one has any excuses on meditation. Do you remember a guy, Dr. Donald Whitney? Well, here it is right here. 17 different ways to meditate. And you've lost your paper by now, I know, but it's on the Internet. You can tune in the Internet. Uh, what's it? www.biblicalspirituality.org you're, you remember this guy. They're also on our website. They're on our website. Hey, it's no excuse. <laughs> Meditation. 17 ways. And this is good. In fact, this is the best I've ever seen. He's given a lot of thought to the meditation. Well, Roman numeral 5, as we're winding it down here, the promises, God's promises are good. Verse 5, verse 9, God's presence will go with you. Verse 5, God's power will never fail you. Verse 5, you will have strength to overcome all enemies. I'm talking about doubt and fear and lust and greed and all those things that are the enemies that we fight against all the time. Verse 6, you will possess the promised land and after all that, you will need some rest. Rest. Roman numeral 6, verse 13. Now, this is spoken right here in chapter 1, before they've even crossed the Jordan River. But God says, uh, excuse me, I think this is uh, Joshua speaking here, the Lord has given you rest and has given you this land. Is that promise good? I mean, He's telling the people, can they believe? Can we believe? Him? Well, for those people, Joshua 21, verse 43 so the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers, and they possessed it and lived in it. All the land. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to all that He had sworn to their fathers, and no one of all their enemies stood before them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hand. Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. You get that? Not one of the good promises failed that God made to Israel. Well, I don't think any of the good promises that God made to us are going to fail either. We are told in the New Testament that there is a final, eternal rest that is coming. We look forward to that. Until then, we rest by faith in the good promises that God has made. There is a penalty here. Verse 18 <clears throat> for those who rebel. Rebellion against God is serious business. We saw that at, um, at the golden calf incident. 
Here's verse 18, chapter 1 of Joshua. Anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Well, rebellion against God in this case carried the death penalty. It does still sometimes today. It did for Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. But remember, lest you think that this is too harsh, that was treason. Rebellion against God in that day was treason against the nation in a time of war. And we still have the death penalty for that today in our military. So God really knows what He's doing. We have to trust Him. Now, if somebody rebels against God today, we don't put him to death. We pray that God is not going to put him to death. We pray that he would not suffer eternal death, that he would come to Christ. Let me ask a question here as we close. Are you, as a Christian, in the wilderness of defeat or in the land of victory? Or if the truth were known, are you still in Egypt, in bondage to sin? Because if you're there, and I've known a lot of people, students mostly, I went through a lot of students when I was a younger man. And those students would come home from college and they would say, guess what, Mr. Welch, I became a Christian. What? You became a Christian? Why, you were the one that was leading the gospel tract distribution and all this good stuff. Oh yeah, but I didn't have the real thing back then. I realized that I was not really a Christian. Well, how do we get off on that? If you realize that you're not really a Christian, the only way you can be set free and get out of Egypt is through the blood of the Lamb. This is the Lamb foreordained before the foundation of the earth. We're talking about Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Do you remember the Passover Lamb? You couldn't make it out of Egypt without death unless you put the blood of the Passover Lamb on the lintel over the door and on the doorpost. Well, now we have the fulfillment of that picture. And it's Christ who was slain on the 14th day of the seventh month in the afternoon with all of His bones intact, just like the Passover lamb. He was the true Lamb of God. You remember what John the Baptist said? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover lamb couldn't really save anyone from God's judgment. It was simply an expression of faith that in the indeterminable future, in God's time, the perfect Lamb of God would come without spot or blemish to pay the penalty for our sin. People were forgiven in Joshua's day if they put their faith in God and followed what He had told them. But their forgiveness was based on the payment that Christ would make later at Calvary. Trust in Him for salvation. Then possess your possession of spiritual maturity. See, sometimes we get that thing backward and we think, well, I'm the one who's got to do salvation, but then once I get in, I don't have to do anything. I just sit back, kick up my feet, and but it's the other way around. We don't have to do anything for salvation. The Bible says it's a gift. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's grace. God gives us a gift. But then... We have to go to work. Then work for the night is coming. And there is a lot of work to do. Finally, do it by meditating on the Word. 
grow in spiritual maturity by meditating on the Word. I never heard anyone say, old codgers like myself, I never heard anyone say, you know, I spent too much time in prayer. I wish I could go back and spend more time at the ballpark or something. And I never heard anyone say, I spent too much time meditating on the Word. But I've heard some people say, you know, in high school, the best thing we did in Bible class was memorize Scripture. Because that's been the thing I've been able to use to meditate on the Word. You, I can promise, you will not be disappointed if you meditate on the Word. Now, in closing, we always like to have a visual for our uh, younger uh, folks. So, here it is. You can't see on my tie, but there are ducks on my tie. A whole flock of ducks. Can you see the little dots? And they're just sitting there on my tie. They're not doing anything. But they are to remind me that I am a sitting duck for the devil if I am not meditating on God's Word. Now, when you see me later today around the church, you can say, you know, that guy was a sitting duck one time, but not anymore. So let me encourage you, get into the Word and get on our website, you see? He'll tell you how to meditate. Dr. Whitney, let's pray. Father, thank You that You have given us everything we need to equip us for life and godliness. And Lord, You have given us plenty of testimony in the New Testament to know that it's going to be a battle. We pray that uh, we might have the vision. We can't do anything apart from Your grace, so we understand that. We thank You for Your grace. We pray we might apply the means of grace in our lives. But Lord, give us a vision of victory. We don't want to be defeated Christians. We don't want to be sad and just uh, wondering how we're going to get out of the doldrums that we sometimes fall into. We see a plan given to us right here in the early chapters of Joshua. And uh, Lord, we see what a formidable task they had. But you're the same yesterday, today, tomorrow. You give us the strength. You overcome the enemy. You provide the weapons. You give us everything we need. And we thank you for that. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now we got a couple of minutes. Anybody got a little testimony you want to give of when you were a sitting duck? <laughs> Any question? Any? Now we just. We just hit the surface today. About what? Well, see, when, when I began to see what we were talking about here, that began to change me, and then I began to change my marriage. I wasn't meditating on the Word because I didn't have time to meditate. In fact, I, I don't know that in my church life growing up, I was in church three times a week all the time. Never missed church. More during the holidays. I don't know if I've heard anybody tell me to meditate on God's Word. I might have read at some point, but nobody made a point to say, you need to do this or else you, you'll be weak, you get in some trouble. So that and prayer uh, made the difference for me. And then uh, one night I prayed um, a dangerous prayer. I said, Lord, I want you to do whatever it takes to change my marriage. Change me, change us, whatever it takes. But be careful if you pray that prayer. The Lord take you up on it. He did. Praise the Lord.